Hey everybody, Mikey here. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Climb Forward Podcast. So a quick couple of announcements before I introduce the guests for today's show. If you're in the Houston area, join me this weekend, Friday and Saturday, at the Workshop East End. Climb Forward will have a booth, I'll have my laptop with me, and we'll be raffling off some really cool prizes. For example, a signed copy of No Ordinary Dog, written by former Navy SEAL Team 6 member Will Chesney. Each purchase of Climb Forward merchandise gets you one raffle ticket. Check out the show notes for more information. Also occurring in the Houston area, Climb Forward is going to team up with the Workshop East End again on Veterans Day to honor Navy SEAL Chad Wilkinson and show support for his family. So join us November 11th at 11 a.m. for the Chad Hero Workout of the Day. 1,000 box step-ups with a weighted rug. Again, see the show notes for more information. Without further ado, my guest today is Matt Allen. After joining the Army at age 19, Matt served in the United States Army as an infantryman and member of the 82nd Airborne. Three combat deployments later, including 12 months in Iraq and 15 combined months in Afghanistan, Matt left the Army, soon realizing that something was off. Looking for help and guided by a friend, Matt found the help he was looking for. This is his story. I'll let him tell it. And this is the Climb 4 Podcast. There it is. All right. What's going on? Not a whole lot, baby. Yeah, man. How long, uh, how long has it been? I think it's been since February, right? Isn't that when we... Yeah, uh, yeah February. Well, dude, thank you for coming on. Um, no real guidance on... It's just your story, you know? Um, I guess I'll get it kind of kicked off with, you know, we met doing the, uh, we met ant journey, right? Mm-hmm. We came together in a small town in Texas and I met you and Eric. And it's funny because at first I thought it was going to be the only veteran that was there, right? I was told there's like 15 to 18 people. I'm like, man, that's just weird. You know, I, I want to be around my guys. It's just, I feel comfortable with that. And the way it played out is they separated us into a separate room. And dude, we were, we were in like, we were thick as thieves in like two seconds. <laughs> so it, it's great to see that kind of come together. Um, what was your experience with that? Before we get to that, actually, you know, what kind of got you uh, to wanting to do that or to needing to do that? Uh, well, honestly, you know, that it, I would say it all stems off of my, my medical experience throughout my entire career and getting into the VA and uh, you know, Pretty early on in the army, I figured out that uh, they're just trying to slap band-aids on and, and push you off to the next guy, you know. Uh, so after going on several deployments and everything and, and dealing with sleep issues and all kind of stuff, you know, the, the army was always pushing pills and the VA was trying to push different pills and I didn't want to take them. I didn't like the way that they made me feel. And uh, after I got out, man, I, I was drinking pretty heavily and, uh, I just got to this point in my life where I knew that if I kept going that way, it wasn't going to be good for me. And, uh, Eric and I, you know, we served together back in 2012, 2013, but I hadn't, I hadn't talked to him in years. And, uh, him and I actually reconnected through, uh, the Freemasons, which is, he got me, he got me involved in them, which was kind of my, uh, my spiritual journey, if you will. Okay. And then he, he had done, uh, the toad ceremonies out in Arizona and he invited me to come down to Austin and check this out. And, and I like, I had no experience with anything close to psychedelics before this. I had no idea what to expect, but it was definitely something that I was really interested in doing. 
And the idea of it being kind of a more natural route was just appealing over, you know, the pharmaceuticals that they're always trying to push. Yeah. So what about, uh, was it something about Eric's experience that kind of was like, okay, cool. This might actually help me. Or had you just gone through all the other measures that you knew were available and were feeling kind of hopeless? Uh, definitely some of his experience, you know, when, when he told me about where he was at with substance abuse and Adderall and drinking and, I think, you know, he went and did one weekend in Arizona and he walked away from there, quit drinking cold turkey. Yeah. That's, you know, I know how hard it is to to even cut back on drinking, much less quit cold turkey. Like that's, that's a powerful message to me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Did you ever, uh, did you end up doing the toad since the last experience? Uh, I haven't yet. Uh, (laughs) After the ayahuasca, I, I needed to take a, I needed some time after that. You had a really rough ayahuasca journey. I definitely want to do the toad. I just, you know, it's a matter of uh, finding the right setting and circumstance. So, Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, the thing about these medicines that I've realized for myself is it kind of, it calls to you, right? Like it's not something you, that I want to be pushed into. It's something I want to be pulled into, um, which for me typically means shitty circumstances, Right. Mm. Um, you've actually been one of the people that I'm very grateful for that kept continually reaching out to me, you know, so I, I can't tell you how much that means to me, man. Um, you know, when you're in those dark moments and, and, and the, the phone goes off and it's somebody who legitimately just cares, like it's helped kind of keep me from going deeper or, or pull me out of it a little bit. So, you know, it's, it's, I can't say enough about that. Um, Tell me about your ayahuasca experience <laughs> because uh, you can see Matt's laughing right now. Um, Eric and I sat there, laid down calm as Hindu cows, and I don't think you stopped throwing up for 20 hours. Like you were just. It was, it was definitely. Uh, so, so I took it initially and, uh, you know, pretty much immediately, like it didn't, didn't make my stomach feel good. So I knew that I was probably going to start puking, which they told me to expect. You know, I laid down, I was kind of trying to groove with the music and get inside my mind. And I was, you know, it was, it was pretty pleasant. And then, uh, the nausea kicked in and, uh, grabbed that bucket and I started puking, you know, and after, after a few minutes, it seemed to subside. And I was like, all right, that wasn't so bad. And then dude, it just hit me like, uh, like a freight train, you know, I kept, I kept going through these, these cycles where I would start to like kind of calm down and close my eyes and, and drift off. And then I would, I would panic because I would start feeling that lack of control. You know, I felt like I wasn't breathing and you know, this, this was right after my sister had passed away last year. Oh, wow. So that was really heavy on my mind. And, uh, I would, I would snap back into reality. And as soon as I did that, the vomiting started again. And uh, it was definitely me trying to fight the medicine, and it it was kicking my ass for a solid three or four hours. I mean, the you know it was it was bad. It was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely a point where I was I was a little concerned that I might actually die. You know, whether that was a a valid fear or or just something that the ayahuasca was trying to get me to deal with. You know. It was real heavy on my mind. My sister passing away. Uh, you know, my parents have had to bury two kids. I'm the last one left. Man, I can't and imagine. 
Yeah. yeah. And then just thinking about, you know, my mom, when my sister passed, she, she's sobbing in my arms and hugging me and telling me, you know, promise me you'll live to be a grizzled old man. Like that's heavy. And I don't think I really, I hadn't really processed that and thought about like what all that really means. Right. So I'm, I'm in, I'm in the ayahuasca and I'm going into this, this Bardo state that feels like some spiritual realm between life and death. And, and I'm just over here like, no, I can't die. And ayahuasca was like, you know, that's not up to you. Wow. So what did you make of that? That it's not up to you. Uh, you know, a, a big part of it is, is accepting the things that you can't control. Right. And, you know, for, for guys like us having control over all the little details, like as much as possible, that's huge. That's, it's everything. And, uh, you know, as a young, as a young man deploying overseas in these combat zones, like we're totally oblivious, oblivious to our own mortality. And I think we kind of have to be in order to do that job. You know, when you, when you put the gun down and you transfer into civilian world, now you have, you know, I've got a wife and two kids now and it's like, Hey, if you don't start taking care of yourself, like you're going to die before you, before you're ready. Right. How old were you when you joined the army? Uh, so I was 19 when I went in. Okay. Uh, I, I did a year of college because I, you know, I hit a rebellious phase in high school mm-hmm. and I don't want to go in the military. So I did a year at college and figured out that wasn't for me pretty quick. And then after that, it was kind of like, well, you know, do I want to, cut pigs in a slaughterhouse all day or should I go join the military? Mm. Uh, were you the only one in your family or did you have a kind of a lineage that you came from? Uh, definitely a lineage. So my dad's dad was a P 51 pilot in world war two. Uh, he actually was an ace in a day, shot down five German bombers in one engagement. Wow. Uh, he did 20 years in the air force. And then my dad did 31 years in the Navy and he was on uh, nuclear submarines for that entire 31 years. Damn. Yeah. yeah that's intense. What so, a, yeah, as, a, as a kid, it was definitely just kind of assumed like, yeah, grandpa did it. Dad did it. I'll do it eventually. You know, when I was in kindergarten, I was going into the barber shop telling them to cut my hair like Maverick from Top Gun. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I see you still uh, have, have kept up with the, uh, the high and uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, I'm uh, I'm doing a little uh, contracting work. So oh, okay, gotcha. So you're 19 years old in the army, and did you know the job that you wanted going into it? Yeah. So uh, I was really fortunate at the time. I was dating a girl whose dad was a retired Green Beret, and uh, initially I, I wanted to do the 18 X-ray contract, which pumps you straight into the the Green Beret pipeline. And I talked to him about it, and uh, and he really discouraged me from from going on that route. Uh, one because being an old an old teen guy, he didn't like the idea of having these guys show up straight from the schoolhouse with no experience in the military whatsoever, going on a on an ODA and whatnot. And then the other half of it was, uh, you know, I, I think he probably knew me a little better than I knew myself at the time. Mm-hmm. I've always been an athletic kid. I grew up playing sports. You know, I did MMA. But I never did anything that really, like, pushed me and challenged me and took me to that dark place where it's like, this fucking sucks and I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
So I ended up, he, he, uh, he set me up with the idea of doing what the army calls an option 40 contract to so go infantry airborne. And then they send you off to uh, ranger assessment and selection. So that, that was what I signed up to do. And uh, it was going great until I got into airborne school and I broke my ankle on my second jump, hmm. which was where my experience with the army's, you know, treat the symptoms, not the cause medical system. They're like, uh, you know, Hey, if, if we say that you have a broken ankle, you're going to go to a leg unit. And if you want to go to airborne school, you can come back in six months, mm-hmm. but if say it's a sprain, you know, keep on trucking and uh, right. we'll get you through. So I was like, cool, it's a sprain, wrap it up. You know, it hurt for a little while, but I finished my jumps and I went down the road to Ranger Battalion. How many more jumps do you have to do on your shattered ankle? So I had three, I, I did five total and uh, my last three were on the broken ankle. Oof. <laughs> yeah. So you're just talking about static line jumps and you have no control. You can't, uh, you can't flare at the end. You can't do anything to control. You're just going down at the rate that you're going down and you got to, what they do call a uh, parachute landing fall, the PLF, which means you go straight to that ankle. So did you have any control over like which ankle you chose or were you just hitting that broken one like the whole time? Uh, I, to be honest with you, I really don't remember. <laughs> um, I just, you know, it, it hurt. They make you run from the airborne school barracks all the way down to the flight line, yep. like two miles. Mm. And I think that hurt worse than any of the jumps. Cause uh, my, my method that I quickly adapted for the PLF was like, you know, go completely limp. Like a, you know, they say drunk drivers don't get hurt in an accident cause they're completely right. relaxed. So I was just like, go completely limp and ragged all into the ground. And that seemed to work. <laughs> it seems to work. Yeah. No, it's, we tend to tense up. Cause you know, that's a natural reaction is like, I'm going to make sure like it doesn't hurt as much. And you're right. Like that gets a lot of people injured. We always had guys getting injured on, on when we'd had to do static line jumps. Like it was almost guaranteed. We had to do yeah, like, it's not fun. Break his femur. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. It's absolutely horrible. So did you, how much, how much time did you put into the army? How, how long were you enlisted for? So I did uh seven and a half years active duty. And how many deployments did you do in that seven and a half? Three. I did uh, 12 months in Iraq, and then I did a six-month and a nine-month deployment to Afghanistan. 12 in Iraq, six and nine to Afghanistan. Wow. So you, you covered the OIF, OEF gamut. What yeah. was that first Iraq experience like, and were you, how old were you, 19, 20? So I, I just turned 20 right before we went to Iraq. Uh, this was in 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much going on for us. You know, they, 82nd Airborne, not not special operations or anything. I spent a lot of time driving around out in the desert on the Syrian border, supposedly looking for smugglers. But uh, to, to sum up my 12 months in Iraq, uh, I didn't fire my rifle at all except to zero it. And I came back really pissed off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, it's Iraq in 2009, 2010. It's like you got to get getting after it. What happened? Uh, what happened after that? What happened with the Afghanistan? How's that go? So 2012, Afghanistan, we went into uh, Ghazni, Afghanistan, a little, uh, little village called Makor. And the area that we went into, it had, been, uh, it had been all European forces since like 2004. So it was occupied by the Polish at the time. And they weren't doing a whole lot in terms of like active patrolling. You know, they would, they would go drive a convoy out and fire all their guns off into the mountainside for no reason and then come back just so they could say they were doing something. 
And uh, so we replaced them being the first Americans in this area in like eight years. And uh, man, day, day one, my very first patrol was a four and a half hour firefight. Wow. Yeah, it, it got pretty intense fast. Baptism by fire, man. For sure. How did I, are you comfortable talking about that? Like, how did that turn out? Uh, so it's, it's funny. Uh, at the time, I was actually carrying the radio for my company commander, a commo guy out there on patrol with him. And I happened to be one of the smart infantrymen that knew how to use a radio, unfortunately. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> I'm running around with the company commander, and uh, our initial contact was just like a, a little PKM fire and a couple RPGs, nothing crazy. But, you know, we, we start reacting to contact, moving through this village, start bounding the platoons and whatnot. And he looks over at me, and he's like, why are you smiling? I had a big old cheesy grin on my face, and I was like, ah, this is my first firefight. Like, this is awesome. And then probably like 15 minutes later, uh, an RPG hits the wall like 10 feet away from me. And I was like, okay, this isn't fun anymore. People are trying to kill me. <laughs> wow. 10 feet away. Did you, was, like a, was, did you get any a TBI or anything from that? I, so this, this, in 2012 is when they started awarding Purple Hearts for TBI. And uh, just prior to this deployment, I had, a, I had a buddy that was with the fifth group that lost both of his legs in Afghanistan, right? And uh, he gets a Purple Heart for that. And so I'm, I'm over here in Afghanistan, like, you know, they're giving out Purple Hearts because people are getting concussions and, and having headaches. Like, not to, to denigrate brain injury at all. I just, you know, there are levels of that stuff. And just because you have a little bit of a concussion and a headache, like, I didn't feel like it, that I was uh, worthy of getting the same award that that guy got. So I'm sure that I had a couple TBI. I know I had one really bad one, uh, but I, man, I stayed away from the medics. I wasn't trying to get any, any purple hearts for any of that stuff. You know, you just wanted to fight. Like you're, you're just a fighter. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I just wanted to do my job. That was what it was. You know, I 12 months in Iraq, I didn't get to be an infantryman. Right. So I'm in Afghanistan and, and shit is popping off. And I was like, all right, I got a job to do. Let's, let's go do it. Let's get some. So what, what was the rest of that first six month deployment like? Uh, it, was, it, it pretty much stayed that tempo uh, for like a solid four months. You know, they, the Taliban figured out pretty quickly not to stand toe to toe like that for these long drawn out engagements. Cause you know, we had Apaches and A-10s and stuff yep. and they knew that, you know, Apache shows up, it's time to quit fighting cause they're going to lose. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> But within within a like ninety day period, we had one hundred and twenty seven engagements. Now these were all probably four hundred meters plus. Like they almost never fought any anything close quarters at all. Right. But it still sucks. You're getting shot at and running around the desert. The thing about that deployment that really stuck out to me was that uh, we got mortared like every day, and we you know people had their watches set by when when we were going to have indirect fire. You, 2.30, you would see people pick up their laptops and go walk out to the bunker and just sit down in the bunker uh, because they knew we were about to get mortared. Yeah. And that's my uh, my really bad TBI that I had. I had a round that landed about five feet outside of the entrance to the bunker. And fortunately, where I was standing, I had a T-wall between it and me, but definitely got my bell rung. 127 engagements. What was the first engagement like compared to, I don't know, the 50th engagement and then the 100th engagement? What was it like to be in these encounters as time went on and as the encounters went on? 
Like what was your like emotional, physical response? You know, the, the first one, like I was saying initially, like it was, it was pretty exciting, you know, but uh, very, very quickly realized like, it's not, it's not like the movies. It's not like TV, you know, there are some real serious consequences. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think once that kind of settled in, it was just like, uh, you know, the, the childish ideas of GI Joe were out the window and it was like, you know, it, it was real. And it, you know, we took it seriously. And, you know, by the end of it, I think I had finally gotten to that point, you know, where I was like, okay, uh, how many times can I do this before something bad happens to me? You know what I mean? Especially the closer you get to the end of that tour. And what, what I always thought was really interesting is like, you know, the, the fear never hit me when the bullets were flying. It was always either right before or right after. Mm-hmm. And, uh, especially like the night before you're going out on a patrol, you know, you're going to this village where we get hit every single time mm-hmm. and you're laying there going through scenarios in your mind. You know, do I have, is my weapon clean? Do I have all my magazines? You know, do I have the same stuff in all the same pockets? You know, where you get that superstition. It's like, if I move this notebook from this pocket to the next pocket, like that might be the difference. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah you mentioned it, it's the, uh, the element of control or the illusion of control. Yeah. You know, like getting the kit set up, like it's everything exactly how I want it. And what does that have anything to do with the vote that the enemy gets that day? Nothing. Right. But it's just the mindset, the mindset of being ready for that kind of stuff. And you guys had to be ready constantly. I mean, with that many engagements and you mentioned, you know, near the end of the term of of the uh, deployment, the first month and the last month of deployment is typically when we'd have guys, you know, getting smoked or whatever. Our first month we had got shot up or whatever, and we took all took some casualties, right? And it was just like a superstition thing or a statistics thing. I don't know. I don't know what contributed to that, um, but that's that's when we had to really kind of be on our guard, right? So for you, like drawn near the end of that, after all these encounters, did you guys take any any casualties? Anybody die? Uh, in our in our company, we had one KIA, a guy named Christian San Nicholas. Uh, he, he got killed during our first major operation, which was the, the first month of the deployment, uh, April 28th. Um, and, you know, it, his, his, the situation with that was just like bad luck. You know, we had, uh, we had this big theater wide operation that we'd been planning. And during the, the walkthroughs with the sand table and, and all that, for some reason, they had all the the village elders in there and, like, the higher-up Afghan police and Afghan soldiers. And I, I've never really understood why they had those guys in there showing them, like, what our detailed breakdown of what our entire plan was. I'm sure that's many, many levels of command above me in, in terms of uh, politics and diplomat shit. But, right. you know, we, we rolled out at, like, one – you know, we had uh, – Route clearance went by about 90 minutes before we started our patrol. And as soon as we rolled out, you know, less than a mile outside the cop, we had a 350 pound IED that I, I mean, I watched a 75,000 pound truck get flipped upside down in the air three times and land upside down. Wow. That's just no joke. Yeah. Did you know Christian very well? Uh, I mean, you know, I knew him about as well as any of the other guys in the company. We weren't super close. Uh, he was in a different platoon than I was, but, you know, he'd been over at my house for parties. We drank together, you know, I saw him every day at work, you know, he 
he was a solid guy. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like to be like, it's like you see these guys in the hallway, you do like the high five and then like they're gone. Like, what did that feel like for you? Yeah, man, it's, it's surreal. I don't know how to even put it into words. And, you know, we, we had a little bit of the benefit of the tempo being so high, like you don't have time to sit down and think about it that much. So, you know, we hit that IED and, you know, medevaced the guys that were wounded and, and got them out of there and got the truck recovered on a wrecker. And then it was like, all right, continue mission. But, you know, we had a, we had a four day patrol to go finish and that was 15 minutes into it. So, wow. Didn't have a lot of time to sit and ponder it. I'm, I'm sure for the guys in his squad, you know, that the presence is obviously felt much more, you know, among those guys that are used to having him in the wedge, but yeah. What, uh, what was it like coming back from that first six months in Afghanistan? So uh, that, that transition back after that was actually fairly difficult for me. Um, I got, I had a lot of insomnia when we came back. I had some pretty serious sleep issues and I don't think it helped that I had an impact zone right behind my house. Yeah. So I had artillery going off at, at all hours of the night and I, I would have nights where I would wake up sprawled out on the floor halfway across the room and I I'm just like what happened and my my wife was like uh you just stood up on the bed and dove across the room like I don't know what the hell you're doing but <laughs> so impressed. so I I struggled with insomnia for about six months I was uh, you know again my experience with the army medical was go to sick call you talk to a combat medic that doesn't know shit about Psycho, you know, psychology or sleep. And they say, yeah, take melatonin, take Tylenol PM, you know, uh, don't drink caffeine in the afternoons. You know, our, our PA eventually did send me over to a, a psychologist at our age, our, our uh, medical clinic, but they, then like, they tried to put me on trazodone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Trazodone is an antipsychotic. And I took that once. And not only did I not sleep, but I also felt like a zombie. I mean, I felt like a different, I felt like I was in someone else's body. And so I immediately told him, I was like, I, I'm not taking any of this stuff. And, uh, unfortunately at that same time, my, my wife at the time, uh, had a prescription for Xanax and she gave me a Xanax one night and I slept great. Yep. (laughs) And it never occurred to me to check and see what the actual chemical name of Xanax was, Mm -hmm. but as a premium which is obviously something that they test for. So uh, November of 2012, I, f- I failed a piss test for taking Xanax. And I, they called me, like, I got a phone call from a medical reviewing officer to ask if I had a prescription for benzodiazepine. And I'm like, what's that? You know, come to find out, oh, that's Xanax. Mm. So uh, immediately they started the whole, the paperwork process to kick me out of the army and, you know, you're a shit bag, go in the shit bag platoon. Like, yeah, my first sergeant, uh, had no interest in, in hearing my side of the story or doing anything to help me at all. He wanted me, I, he probably would have dropped me off at the gate, you know, and taken my cat card from him, you know, if he could have right then and there. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, probably somewhat due to my personal relationship with my company commander, he's a little more willing to go to bat for me. So when I had my Article 15 reading and I'm standing there in front of my battalion commander, uh, my CO actually stood up and vouched for my character as a soldier. And I had my medical records 
that I had brought to show him, like, this is when I started going to seek help for these sleep issues. And they hadn't done anything other than try and give me the trazodone. Like, they really hadn't done anything, no sleep studies or, or trying to figure out what the problem was. And uh, between that and my company commander, my battalion commander was willing to basically say, you know, 12 months suspended Article 15. You stay out of trouble for the next 12 months, it's like it never happened. Wow. At least and you got so, that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I went through the, the Army Substance Abuse Program. And then, you know, I managed to stay out of trouble for the next 12 months and was able to continue my career for a little bit longer. Did you find yourself, like, wanting more Xanax? Did you find yourself drinking more? Like, was anything different in terms of substance use? Uh, Getting off the Xanax was hard, for sure. Um, I've always felt kind of blessed that I don't don't really have an addictive personality. You know, like, I I could smoke a pack of cigarettes and then quit cold turkey the next day. Uh, but man, like getting, getting off of it was definitely not easy. And I can, I can definitely see, you know, those, those medications and the substances get their hooks in and it's, it's not easy to get out of it. Especially if it helps you sleep. And yeah, well, especially if it helps you at all. Exactly. Exactly. You feel like you are doing better. Yeah. Cause I've also struggled with uh, Adderall as well. Adderall is a big one because man, that, I mean, it makes me feel like how I should feel all the time. You know, my brain is 110%. I have energy and I'm like, this is how I should feel all the time. This makes me a better, a better version of myself in my mind. Right. You know, but that's, that's, I think this tricky part, especially for me when it came to any amphetamine, it made Mm -hmm. me a better husband. I was more uh, focus. Therefore, I could get more products made. I was a better JTAC. I was a better team guy. Like I was a better friend. I could sit there and listen to you without having to feel depression, anxiety, without having to worry about 20 other things. I could be at home and stay at home. Normally, I was at home. My mind's at work. And then I go to work. My mind's at home, right? I was always just separated from, from the moment. Adderall just kept me in that moment, man. That was my first drug of no choice. And I, I feel you on that one. But it helps, right? Helps me to be a better me. Helps me to sleep when I can't sleep. Yeah. You know, that's the, the the image they paint of us when this sort of thing happens. By us, I mean somebody takes a chemical. Is that we're pieces of shit, right? That we're just we don't give a shit about the uh, the mission. You know, we don't give a shit about the country or any of that crap. It's like no, man. We're trying to be better versions of us. And what's made available, and what the consequences are if I don't go with that and only that, are keeping me in one position. I'm pigeonholed. And saying nothing and, and being like, everything's good, but let's, let's keep going. You know, Charlie Mike, let's move forward. So it's, you were able to get away from some of that stuff. And then 12 months goes by. And then you were able to go get back into the, into the mix. So what was that like? What was that 12 months like? And what was getting back into it like? Uh, so during that 12 months, you know, I was, I was hanging out in the headquarters platoon. I didn't have a job. Right. I was just like, oh, that's. Sarn Allen, yeah, he, he, he failed a piss test, and uh, they're probably going to kick him out of the Army. And so I was just over here kind of doing my own thing. Like, nobody, nobody paid attention to whether or not I showed up for PT. You know, nobody paid attention where I was throughout the day. You know, so it was kind of like I was, a, I was a ghost. Yeah. At the time, I didn't really mind because I was, I was in my head, and I was like, I don't, I don't care if I'm a shitbag. You know, they're not helping me. Why should I help them? And uh, 
after, you know, eventually they figured out I wasn't going to get kicked out of the army and they decided to do something with me and they stuck me back in one of the line platoons. And, uh, man, when I got back in the line platoon, they had to whip my ass back in shape. And I, I pretty quickly realized like, all right, it, it's time to go back to being a soldier and quit feeling sorry for yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. But you acclimate to that fairly quickly, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, it, as soon as I got back into the mix with the platoon, uh, I, I mean, it didn't take long. I got right back into it. So, What is it about being in a platoon that kind of like, like, what's that feel like? You go from headquarters where you're ghost and now platoon. What's that difference like? Uh, you're, you know, you're back, you're back with the guys and they're, the camaraderie there. It's really hard to put into words just knowing, you know, that these guys are depending on you to show up and do your job. And you're also depending on them to do the same thing. So you get that, uh, you get that apathy and that selfishness and you really, you got to put it in the back seat because you've seen guys that, that don't do that. And they are the shit bags, you know, the guys that care more about themselves than they do the team and the platoon and everything. Right. And nobody wants to be that guy. You know, most people don't anyways. So just, just being able to have, you know, friends, you know, the guys on my fire team, you talk to them about anything and they got your back, you know, partying on the weekends is always fun. <laughs> yeah there's stories i haven't told yet about that exact thing <laughs> which may never make it they may make it in a book one day i don't know i am a team guy we just write books but the thing with uh being in the platoon is you know being back and having purpose and that was yeah you have a you have accountability as well accountability is huge when you're accountable to somebody besides yourself and and you have the structure so you know this, I think the structure is one of the big things that guys miss when they get out. Not so much like, oh, you got to get up and do PT at this time every morning, but just knowing, you know, this is what you're going to do throughout the day. This is when you got to do it. So you're not just at the whim of whatever, whatever strikes you at the time. You know, that's right. how you get in trouble. You go fucking drink half a bottle of whiskey in the middle of the day because you have nothing else to do. And then you're worthless. Got nothing but time. You got no purpose. That's how I felt at least. When you got back in the platoon and you're getting back into shape and you're back with the guys and you're back in your element, um, obviously drinking is a big part of the military culture. You know, that that's the common denominator across all branches, rank, order, and, and drinking. What was your drinking like? Did it get any worse? Were you ha- seeing a problem with that or what was that like? It's funny, actually. My uh, my drinking while I was in the military was, was not really uh, a big problem. You know, I, I – I usually only drank on the weekends, you know, I wasn't drinking and getting up and doing PT. So like, yeah, on Friday night, uh, my house, my house tended to be the party house where everyone would show up and be playing beer pong and getting hammered. But I, I kept my drinking pretty confined to the weekends while I was in. Yeah. It's like we had a job to do and you're the kind of guy that puts your job above everything else. Cause the job is the guys, it's the mission. It's, right. it's, it's life or death. You know, it's, it's way more important than, than any drink or drug for that matter. So this leads you to the nine-month deployment in Afghanistan. What was that like? Yeah, so the nine months in Afghanistan, this, this deployment turned out to be uh, pretty boring. Uh, we were about five months in before we got into any kind of combat at all. And uh, the, the combat we did see was nothing like it had been in 2012. Um, this one, we had a lot of issues with guys getting in trouble because we had downtime and when soldiers have downtime, they do stupid shit. 
but you know, aside from that is a typical go to the gym twice a day, eat in the chow hall. You know, we did our patrols where nothing would happen. And then we'd come back, go do our cycle on tower guard, you know, so it, was, it was pretty boring, honestly. Yeah. yeah pretty uneventful. Yeah. So coming, coming back from that, did you have, it sounds like you had probably had another interface with uh, army medical. Yeah. Well, this one, uh, coming back from that deployment, the last month that I was over there, uh, my wife at the time informed me that she wanted to get a divorce. So that's always fun. Right. Uh, that was my first right. experience with the mental health side of the army. Right. Oh, cause I, I, when, when that happened, I was in a, I went to a bad place immediately. You know, I was, again, it's the control element, you know, I'm in Afghanistan and she's telling me she wants to get divorced and then she cuts off all communication and there's nothing I can do about it. So I was that I had a couple, couple guys over there with me that like humanly cared about me and, and were willing to put their necks on the line to take care of me. so, So they got me hooked up with the army chaplain and, and I got, I got set up with people that were able to, you know, keep me from going too far into the darkness. They, they actually sent me back a couple weeks early from that deployment. Okay. Uh, so I get back and immediately go on uh, two weeks of leave so I could go get all this divorce stuff taken care of. And uh, that, I think that's probably when my drinking really escalated because at that point, you know, now I'm, I'm divorced and I'm living in a house off base by myself. So what else was I going to do, you know? Time to party, drink the pain away. Yeah. Right. So it sounds like that's kind of what happened. And is that, that's when the drinking really took off. Did that become a problem or is it just like really heavy drinking? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on, on who you ask, whether it was a problem or not. Yeah. I, I, it was just heavy drinking, but yeah. you know, when you, when you are in that mind, it's kind of hard to, uh, to see it from a third party perspective and really put a frame of reference on, I'm doing this and I think it's fine. But then I have, I look at other people and they're kind of looking at me like, you know, are you okay? You know, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm fine. So. Yeah. That's, it's weird how we can do that. Right. Like I, dude, I was doing that when I was putting a needle in my arm. I was like, well, you can rationalize it. You know, you yeah, can rationalize yeah. anything to yourself. Yeah. Single, you know, no you don't have anyone to be accountable to. Right. Yeah. So we put the blinders on or I put the blinders on at least. Sounds like you did too. And it's like, no big deal. Uh, what year was this? Uh, this was 2014. Okay. And how long did that continue for? How long, how much longer were you in the army for? So I got out in uh, May of 2016. So about a year and a half okay. after deployment, uh, I left active duty. Um, a, a big part of why I left. So I, uh, I injured my back in 2015. I fractured the vertebrae static line jumping again. And uh, it took the army six months to get me an MRI and figure out that I had actually fractured something. Oh my god! So yeah, again, I like, "Yeah, my back hurts." And they're like, "Dude, this is an airborne infantry battalion. Everyone's backs hurts. Mm-hmm. Sleep on the floor. Do some stretches. Here's a tens machine." Uh, so at around that same time, I came down on orders to go to uh, Fort Wainwright, Alaska, to a striker brigade. Came with a three-year re-enlistment, and I pretty much told them, "I'm not, I'm not re-enlisting for three more years to go to Fort Wayne, right, Alaska. Like it's not going to happen." So I, I signed a declination statement. 
two weeks before I was supposed to get promoted to E6. So uh, once I signed that, you know, barred from promotion, barred from re- re-enlistment. And again, I got shipped off to the S3 shop where, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite become a ghost like I did the first time, but, you know, being an S3 shop in an, in an admin position is just not the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's where they, that's where I've noticed they stick the guys in one of two positions. One, you're a troublemaker Two, you're, you kind of just got advancement and, and you're after a, a deployment. Right. So it's administrative. Like you said, there's not really a whole lot going on and you're kind of just inert. You're not really doing shit. So you're leaving the army after about seven and a half years. And where did you, where'd you go? Like, what'd you do? So <laughs> I had, uh, I had absolutely no plan leaving the military. Um, I got married in January of 2016 to my wife, Kayla, and we had our daughter, Lillian, uh, about two weeks before I left active duty. So all I had going for me at the time is that my parents lived in Oklahoma and they had room in the house for us. So we moved to Oklahoma and uh, I, I started working at a gun range pretty much right away, which would actually helped out a lot because I worked with uh, pretty much all veterans there. And guys that, you know, they were a lot older than I was and they had been out of the military for a while. And they were, they were kind of able to help me figure out that, that transition from military to civilian. And then I think about six months after I moved to Oklahoma, uh, I started doing government contracting. Okay. And uh, that's, that's what I'm still doing now. So doing that now? Yeah. Awesome, man. That's, well, that's good. Like, yeah, the not having the plan part makes it so much harder, <laughs> right? Yeah. But you had a pretty good setup is what it sounded like. Well, you know, with, with my parents as a backstop, you know, I, I really, I had nowhere to go but up from there, I guess. And I, <laughs> I kind of just stumbled into the next step, you know. Uh, I was working at the range one day. My buddy who did contracting overseas was like, hey, there's a, there's a contracting gig downtown you should check out. And, I got in touch with them and they hired me pretty much right away. And the, the pay is awesome. The work schedule is awesome. You know, so I just kind of like, it's like when the next step was indicated, I didn't really do much to make it happen. It just kind of like presented itself to me. And it was like, this is the obvious path to go. So I was really fortunate and uh, just kind of stumbling my way into success. Do you have a, do you attribute that to something differently now after the plant medicine versus before? Uh, yes, I, I'm not so sure that I would say I'm a believer in fate. Mm-hmm. Definitely don't think that things happen by accident and I don't believe in coincidence, you know, whatever, uh, higher power you want to attribute it to. Right. Well, I, I definitely think that it was, you know, a little bit of guidance where the right piece of information would come to me at the right time and open up the next opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're working at gun range, you get hooked up with the contracting job, which you've been with uh, over four years now. So it sounds yes, like uh, it'll be five years in a, in a week, actually. So nice, dude, that's, that's awesome. What was going on in these few years to get you to, uh, to Austin uh, this past year? Uh, so when I moved out to Oklahoma, another buddy of mine from the army, one of my really close friends, uh, he, he decided to move out here too with him and his wife. And uh, so that was great. I mean, he was one of my best friends 
we saw each other probably six out of seven days of the week. Mm-hmm. The problem is all we did was drink. Right. And, and the two of us could put away a handle of whiskey together in a night. Like it was nothing, you know? Yeah. So we, uh, for the, for the nine months that he lived here or whatever, like that's pretty much just what we did was drink every day. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's that's when drinking became a problem. Where like I was showing up to work too hungover to be at work, or still drunk, you know, <clears throat> where I sh- definitely shouldn't have been at work. Yeah, uh, or or calling in and not showing up. And... So that's when you started to notice it was becoming a problem. No, I I oh. did. <laughs> you still were like, I'm good. I got this. I yeah. I mean, it was just like, a, yeah, this is, this is just my normal. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't until after. after you know, however long, like, I think I said nine months or a year or something, uh, him and his wife end up getting divorced and he moves back to North Carolina. Then I'm by myself and I'm still drinking. Yeah. That's when my wife pointed out to me, like, Hey, this is a problem. And it, it was a problem. One, just in like, you know, my, my physical health, like I gained a fuck ton of weight, you know, and obviously drinking that much is just not good for you. But the amount of money I was putting into it, you know, yeah. not good. Yeah. I had to... How long ago is this when your wife told you it's becoming a problem? Uh, so this this would have been probably October of 2018. Okay. Gotcha. So October, November, December, January, February. Okay. So you, you went and got this uh, kind of alternative healing thing a little over a year. Yeah. So yeah. So it went on for a little bit. Yeah. You know, so the, the, I still, I still was drinking. I, I tried to cut back, but I was still drinking every night, but it wasn't, you know, drinking until I pass out. It was just, and so one of the reasons that I, that I drink as well is the continuing sleep issues. Okay. Yeah. So, and so that was how I was rationalizing it during all of that time is like, if I don't, you know, if I don't drink, I can't sleep. And I, you know, I tried Ambien. And I'd, I'd wake up driving a car, <laughs> you know, uh, the over the counter, the stuff just made me drowsy. It didn't, didn't help me sleep. Made me feel like shit. Same thing with melatonin. Like it just made me feel, you know, zero energy throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And then when I started noticing like, Hey, if I drink like a measured amount of whiskey, mm-hmm. you know, I sleep great. And then I feel good when I wake up in the morning, <laughs> but, uh, so the, the way that I got around to the alternative medicine is right after, right after my sister passed away in 2019, uh, I actually, I just saw Eric, he made some kind of, uh, some kind of meme on Facebook about Freemasonry, right? And I've, I'd known about Masonry for years. I always thought it was one of those like secret society conspiracy theory things, you know, I was like, right. Uh, but something, something about Eric, you know, you, you've met him. He's a pretty serious guy sometimes, not all the time, but he's somebody, you know, when they, when they lend credence to something, you take him seriously and you're like, okay, this is a solid dude. If he's this invested in something, maybe it's worth looking into. Mm. So I started, I started getting into that towards the end of 2019 and, uh, it's, it's been a journey, man. Like it's really the, the last year of my life, I've probably learned more about myself and the world than I did 
probably the entire eight years I was in the military. Wow. I'm, I'm reading a lot of philosophy, a lot of historical texts, just uh, higher level brain stuff that, you know, as an infantryman, I would have just looked at those books and been like, okay, you fucking nerd. <laughs> Ain't got time for science. Yeah. Right. So, so free, so you're still doing the Freemasonry deal. Yeah. So, uh, so I was raised a master Mason actually the week after that ayahuasca ceremony. What does that mean? Uh, so, so when you become a Freemason, there are three degrees. You start out as an entered apprentice and then you become a fellow craft and then you become a master Mason. And through, through those three degrees, we do a little uh, kind of a ritual ceremony to, you know, initiate guys in. And then there's some stuff that you got to memorize to go with it, to be able to advance to the next level. Hmm. Uh, and then, so after that, then they have several different appendant bodies. Like I'm sure you've heard of the Shriners hmm. or uh, the Scottish Rite, the York Rite, stuff like that. But in, in terms of like just the, the core of Freemasonry, once you become a master Mason, like, you know, you're in, so to speak. Nice. Um, when it came to the plant medicine, so it sounds like obviously your, your sister had passed away. You had another sibling that had passed away. Anything. So that combined with, you know, whatever you experienced in combat, that sounds like a, sounds like a lot of trauma. Um, were you able to see it like that? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny because in my own mind, I always kind of looked at myself as like, Oh yeah, I've been through this traumatic stuff, but it doesn't affect me. And mm-hmm. well, it did. I just didn't realize how it affected me. Right. Um, and so one of the one of the things with Freemasonry, and this is controversial, just it depends on who you talk to. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of connections like medieval alchemy, and there are even uh, there are even Freemasons that have written books about the psychedelic connections to Freemasonry. And mm-hmm. and uh, if you go far enough back in the histories, like there's definitely some, some stuff there, you know, and you start getting into the psychedelics and religion, it, it gets really complicated. And yeah. it's cool that Eric can tell you about, because I'm not nearly, <laughs> it. but, um, you know, I, I was struggling with my marriage pretty significantly after, you know, before and after my sister passed, you know, the, the drinking didn't help at all. And, uh, so basically when Eric asked me about it, I was just kind of like, you know, he told me his experience with the toad and I was like, you know, anything that'll make me better, I'm willing to give it a shot. Yeah. And I've all, you know, I'm a curious individual as well too. So I'm like tripping balls off on DMT sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in case you didn't notice, it was not awesome. <laughs> no, I, I picked up on that very quickly. I remember laying there. And like, I was like, okay, I, I don't care what happens. I just don't want to throw up. I mean, I'll throw up if I have to, but if I wonder if I can control it in any way. Thankfully, they ended up working out. The only thing that got in the way of that a little bit was hearing you, actually feeling you just, like, God, I can't describe enough to the people who are listening. Like, what that was chaotic. It was, like, demonic. Yep, it was an exorcism. I'm like, holy shit, like, can we just put a bullet in this dude and get it over with? Number one, so I can experience mine peacefully. Number two, so he can be at peace and stop suffering. What Did you get – so before that, we had the night where we had uh, the chocolates with the other stuff. What was that night like for you? Did you what did you get out of that? 
So the first night, I, I actually, I really enjoyed it. Um, the big takeaways that I got from that was opening back up to compassion. Yeah, man. That's, that's the main reason I think that I went there is because, hell, if you had asked my wife before that, she might have told you that I was a sociopath, like cold, unemotional, not, not emotionally available, just like shut off, which I was. But I didn't realize that was a problem because I was so used to being that way. It was just normal for me to be numb and to not not feel these things, you know. And uh, and so the first night, man, like whatever whatever it does to like peel back the armor and and experience that kind of like love and empathy, like I'd never have before. I, I remember at one point. You know, we were in that room, just the three of us, like you were saying, but I got up and I went out into the living room where the other 15 people were. Yeah. And just like, I was just bombarded by this energy of like all of these other people. But I was like, holy shit, these are actual real people that have their own lives going on and like are impacted by shit that I do. You know? Yeah, and so it was immensely powerful. You know, and uh, I, I experienced def- very uh, several different like points of view, where like you know I was able to kind of understand and empathize with what it must have been like for my parents to be burying their daughter, and then you know having to having to worry about their own feelings about that while also having to take care of me, their son who just lost his sister, and I, you know those those kind of revelations where they were just like. They're so overwhelming. I, I don't, I can't even put it into words fully. Yeah. It's like, you don't go in there thinking this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to accomplish. You said it yourself. You're like, I had no clue what I was getting into. I'm not into psychedelics, dude. I wasn't either when I, I'm still not into quote unquote psychedelics other than the healing potential they really have. So right. the one you're referring to is, is really the MDMA. You know, we basically had an MDMA psychotherapeutic session not the way that MAPS does it officially for scientific literature purposes, but for the purpose of we're controlled, um, we're being monitored, and we're being guided at the same time. Well, it, it absolutely is uh, therapeutic, and I, I would even go so far as to call it medically therapeutic. It's just not the modern standard of what they consider medicine. Right. Because these are things that people have been using for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, there are still tribes in the Amazon that they don't have electricity, but they're still using these substances to treat their sick and ill. And they have been forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. These plants and MDMA is not a plant, but it's still the same idea. There's a documentary called the trip of compassion. I got to put this in the show notes. I think you can still get it on Vimeo or something like that. And it's these three different people and they're in Israel and they all get the MDMA uh, psychotherapeutic setting dosage as per the journal articles, right? They do that just so it can be repeatable, so on and so forth. Um, but they all have these amazing breakthroughs. I think two thirds, two out of three of them uh, had experienced uh, sexual trauma. They were, they were raped. Another one was military-based trauma. And they're showing really, really interesting implications for this substance. Now, you know, it gets a bad rap, of course, because you got big pharma's hands on it. It's a derivative of methamphetamine. So like, oh, my God, you know, people are using it. People are using it, obviously, um, without discretion at a club setting, mixing it with other uh, adulterated with a bunch of other crap. 
right? So that's kind of the message that gets displayed to the media. But what we're finding out more recently is people that otherwise would kill themselves are now coming out of this with, like you said, compassion, with empathy. They have a new lot on life, a new fucking set of lenses, if you will. They're learning to love themselves and love others. They, to take somebody else's view on something is love. There's no two ways about it. And this is pretty much what that enables. What kind of effect did that have on you since then? If you could kind of sum it up. Uh, I mean, definitely the, the biggest effects that I've noticed are just being more aware of other people's emotional states, especially uh, much more perceptive with my wife and my daughter and being, being able to just like uh, where, where before, you know, my wife might've been upset and I might've just written it off be like, Oh, she's just being emotional cause she's a woman or whatever. And I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it to now, like being able to kind of like stop and, and see like, you know, let's look at it from her point of view and try and understand why she's upset with me for this and what I can do, whether I, you know, whether I feel that it, it is justified to me or not doesn't matter because if she's feeling it, then who am I to say if it's justified or not? Yeah. And so it allowed me to kind of take a step back and be able to say like, I need to do these things to be a better husband and a better father, or I'm going to end up with a second failed marriage and two kids that I don't see. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so just being able to, a big, one of the big things to me also is uh, swallow, swallowing my own pride and being able to humble myself, you know, it's okay for me to go tell my wife, like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I appreciate you. Thank you. Like, you know, my, my dad, military officer, very proud man, great, great dad. Uh, but I don't think I've ever in my life seen him go tell my mom, like, thank you for being such a great mom and, and doing everything you've done. Like, I appreciate it. You know, and saying those things to my wife, like I can see it on her face when I do say it, which I don't say it enough, that it's, it makes a world of difference. So much, man. And I'm like you, like, I always just kind of gritted my teeth and went along with it. You know, just, she's got problems, but like, it's probably my fault. So I'll take the blame so we can move forward, but I never could really move forward. It, I always felt like a bigger piece of shit. And that was with my now ex-wife and then in a, in a follow-on relationship. Um, and I, they've both been obliterated and I'm, I'm at a loss. That was a big part of the continued substance use is it, it worked quote unquote, it worked mm-hmm. to not feel pain. It worked to not feel lonely. I could distract myself from that. Cause I still got all this shit I got to do, man. I'm school. I got a job. I got all this stuff. I just don't want to feel that right. I don't know what to do with it. You know, my dad wasn't around. What do I do with this stuff? After these medicines and a lot of other journeys, I had to hit a few more bumps along the way, but man, I'm just the connection with the higher power, like you alluded to earlier. Yeah. That's, that's been one of the, one of the huge things for me too. Uh, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist and I think my path was pretty similar to a lot of guys where like one day they realize like, Hey, uh, do I actually believe this or is this just what I was taught? And then, you know, you get in the military, you meet all kinds of different people, all kinds of different religions. And, and I, I was, I mean, I wouldn't call it a spiritual crisis, but essentially that's what it was because it's like, I don't, I don't know what I believe because I don't know what's true and what's not. I don't know how, how much of these are just things that I've been taught since I was such a little kid that, that they're so deeply implanted in my mind. Like 
how do I get past that? And uh, the between between the Freemasonry and the plant medicine and uh, some of the philosophy stuff that I've been reading, like that's really reconciled my my spirituality in a huge way. And I have Eric to thank for a lot of that because he's been uh, he's been kind of a mentor for me for the last year or two. Well, I'll edit that part out. We can't let Eric know we said anything good about him. We got to start talking shit. Eric's a piece of shit. Fuck that dude. (laughs) A ranger. What does that even mean these days? Uh, I don't know. I heard they used to like chase down Indians on horseback or something. No, that was that was when they were cool. No, they changed since. Oh, that was the Texas. That was yeah, different state. You know, totally different, totally different ballpark. You know, (laughs) ball game, I should say. (laughs) Yeah, now I sound like an idiot on recording. Um. But dude, I remember one thing about that that I really, really enjoyed is we were all under that and we all felt that energy. And the three of us, like, we kind of sit up and we're like, just kind of coking and joking. It was like being back in the platoon. And then we started having people come in there. Like five, yeah. dude, it was like five or six chicks just come in there. They start like <laughs> sitting there like, oh my God, you guys are so funny. It's just like, it was so much fun, man. I noticed something talking to you right now. Like you seem more calm. Um, I remember I was so, I get so excited talking to people sometimes that I almost like jump in and like, cause I want to like ask a question. I could see you getting pissed whenever we were in the room together. <laughs> I was like, hey, Roger that man, Roger that. I get it. I get it. Um, but I noticed now, like hopefully either I, hopefully I've gotten a little bit better at it, but you've also just kind of like, you just seem more chill, man. So at the time when uh, I, I had been working in, uh, I won't say where, but I was in a place a lot of exposure to the public and not, not the cream of the crop either. It was just like Monday through Friday of dealing with, you know, I don't want to say dirt bags and criminals, but a lot of them were dirt bags and criminals. And that was one of the other big things uh, that I, I walked away from that first night with was, was understanding, you know, the idea that other people are struggling too. And to, you know, whereas I might've looked at somebody before and immediately just categorized them as like, this guy is a problem or this guy is a threat to like, you know, that's still in the back of my mind, but now I'm looking at him and I'm like, you know, Hey, what, what can I do to help you out here? Like, like, what do you need? Yeah. Versus like, why are you bothering me? You wow. Know? That's a huge shift, man. And it, it, dude, it's tremendous. The stress level in my life, just from making that mental shift has reduced drastically so what uh what about the experience on because we had that and then like the chocolates did you notice anything from the cho- it was all combined so that night was it's hard to yeah, say so what the f- i think that what do we take first the white lily yeah yeah we took that first yeah that that one i didn't you know uh I, it's hard to explain that one really just i felt this weight on my chest and i felt like i was out of breath on that stuff okay you know it, it wasn't super powerful it's just like okay like something is going on right right uh but the chocolates is what really uh just launched it you know what i mean and that was the uh psilocybin and ayahuasca they actually i'd never heard of that mix in uh in chocolate form that was that was the bomb dude <laughs> that was the, i i, I enjoyed it. it was quite nice i'll put it that way it was very nice <laughs> yeah but there were there were moments where i was like i was over there like laughing one minute and crying the next minute and then just like in super deep meditation you know it was kind of all over the place but but it was good i i mean 
I, I woke up that next morning and I just wanted to hug everybody. I was like, I've never felt this much like love in my life. Like, I don't know what this is. Yeah. Everyone needs to do it. it. Absolutely. That's, and I, for me and dude, I'm, I'm an addict. There's no two ways about it. I don't think that's, nobody knows that about me. Um, and I find myself not craving that. I don't want to go back and I got to get more. I got to get more. I don't even think about it unless I'm talking to you or talking to somebody else about my experience or hearing yours. And then I'm like, Oh, that's a fond memory. You know, it really there are times cool. where, uh, like you said earlier, uh, it, it calls to you, you know? And so one of the big things, like, so we did the ayahuasca the second night, right? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. Basically. I started puking almost immediately. And I think I continued puking for at least four hours and it was like violent retching, like my entire body just like shuddering, especially once there wasn't anything else to come out, you know, like I was full force puking, but there's nothing left. Yeah. Every time I would try and drink water, more puking. And uh, I just, I remember just sitting there thinking like, if I don't stop puking, I'm going to fucking die. <laughs> like, I don't know how much more of this my heart can take. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I was looking at this bottle of water and I was negotiating with the bottle of water. Like the water in that bottle represented life. And I was like, all right, I need to drink a little bit of you so that I stay alive. And I need you to just work with me here and stay inside my body. <laughs> You've got and one I, job, just one yeah. job. Yeah. And I remember like several times looking over at you and Eric and apologizing profusely. Like, I'm sorry, guys. I hope I'm ruining <laughs> your experience. Like, I felt so bad just because yeah. I like how loud it is when I puke. It's not quiet. My wife calls it calling the dinosaurs. That, that's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. The yeah. decibel level rivaled that of a jet engine. Yeah. And the, you know, the shaman is in there like trying to calm me down. And I'm just like, please don't let me die. <laughs> Like I said those exact words to him. And uh, man, that I had I had several different hallucinations. It just kept cycling. And the prominent theme was I, I kept dying. You know, like one of the one of the more vivid ones that I experienced, I was being torn apart by lions. I felt sunlight on my face. I could taste the dirt and the blood in my mouth, and I could feel these lions like sinking their teeth and their claws into me and ripping my body apart. And it only lasted for like a second. But that one second, like it was as real as me sitting here talking to you. Wow. And then I would pot, like my eyes would snap open and I would grab the bucket and I would start puking again. And man, that the first two weeks after that ceremony, I was, I was struggling to reconcile, like, how do I go back into my normal life? after that experience, after being in that place and feeling, you know, cause one of the, one of the biggest things is after I got through going through these different death cycles, uh, I had a very vivid moment. I was like laying on the floor in a teepee wrapped in a Buffalo hide with like native Americans chanting and playing their flute all around me, a little campfire going. And I, I stayed there for a pretty, solid amount of time you know just curled up on that little mattress like okay i'm done puking everything is calm now and uh what were you feeling when you're wrapped up in this like buffalo hide in this teepee very like a very strong spiritual presence you know 
Like it, it, it equated to being in the room with somebody else. You know, as somebody that like, you know, imagine if uh, Mike Tyson was sitting behind you, but like nice Mike Tyson, like you would <laughs> presence there. You would know he was there. Right, right. That's that's what it felt like. Like I yeah. was, I wasn't alone. There were, there was something around me, and whatever it was was like super powerful. Right, but not like imposing. No, not, not imposing in any in any way. It was all. It was very. It was like it was motherly. You know what I mean? Like it was like a motherly energy. I had almost that exact same spirit experience recently, um, except fatherly, because that's kind of what I needed at the time. I needed fatherly advice, you know, and it, that's what it was. It was this almost like infinite void, but not really a void, but not imposing, not scary, but supremely powerful. You know, my concept of a higher power, like I finally had cracked. I'd exhausted every resource I possibly could therapeutic and otherwise to, to solve this problem of heartbreak and loneliness. And I'm not good enough. And I miss this one person very much and they're gone and they're never coming back. And then finally I was like, I give up, but that's when it happened. The most, the most now it's a, it's a God consciousness that's been established. Dude, that's only been made possible for me through plant medicine and a lot of bullshit. Um, what is life like for you now? I mean, you, you mentioned some of it. You try to see your wife's point of view on things, even when you don't fully agree or understand, you still have that awareness and that willingness to be like, okay, what, what is she going through and why? That understanding, you resort to understanding that. What else is different? Uh, one of the biggest, so so the, I think it took me probably a month or two, maybe maybe longer to fully understand that ayahuasca experience. And I'm not even sure that I do at this point, you know? Uh, but I, I mean, I was like, I was talking to Eric and I was like, I don't, I don't ever want to do this stuff ever again. <laughs> <That's how laughs> uh, until I got past the point where I, I just like understood, you know, a big part of it was making me aware of my own mortality and, and helping me to understand that it's not in my control when I die or how I die. Yeah. but you know, there are things that I can do to improve my chances of staying alive, like cutting back on the drinking and exercising, eating better stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, so, but my life lately, the big thing I think is uh, just some mindfulness. And I hate saying that because it sounds so like 1960s hippie yoga, you know, we're not <laughs> hippie dippy bullshit. Yeah. Right. But that's that's not the image that veterans really cultivate when you think of like, oh, I was an airborne infantryman, right? But just thinking about things when I do them, you know, from like very simple mundane tasks of like waking up and washing my hands, right? Like, you know, instead of just washing your hands or taking a shower, actually thinking about this water that's going over me and cleaning me, like, where is it coming from? Where is it going? Wow. You know, being grateful for the fact that I have running water, you know, like driving my car to work, you know, thinking about like the guys that work and maintain the roads or who built my car or who processed this petroleum so that I can have gas to put into my car. It's just being aware of all this stuff. Definitely. Uh, it perpetuates a lot of gratitude and just, you know, uh, it almost may, it's almost like an active form of meditation at the same time. So like it calms my mind and it helps me stay uh, 
on the right path, so to speak. Nice, man. That's, that's a lot. I know I have a hard time with it too. It's like, you know, namaste and like all that. And it's just like, I don't, I don't use words I don't use, right? Like I don't go around right. saying certain things, um, but I know exactly what you mean. Like, okay, this dog that's in my life, dude, I used to keep him locked in his cage for like a day or two at a time. So he just wouldn't bother me when I was like using and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's a creature. Can you imagine me caged up? We were caged up. We were caged up by just a different yeah. incarceration, right? To be freed from that, to be emancipated is, um, ah, by contrast, is, is grace. Is that feeling of grace. Like I've got something now I don't feel like I deserve, but we've deserved it the whole time. Um, it sounds very peaceful, man. Like I said, like you just, you just really calm now. <laughs> it's awesome. Like you're, you're, you're the same, but different, you know, my personal life, you know, my relationship with my wife, probably more than anything else has, yeah. has improved and they, like that has a direct impact. You know, like we still have our issues here and there. Uh, but I definitely like the parts of it that are my fault. I'm doing a lot better. You know, uh, my work life, like the people that I work with, they might have noticed a more drastic improvement than anyone else. Because, you know, like I, my wife sees me every day and you don't always notice those small changes constantly. But when I see somebody that I hadn't seen for weeks and I, you know, I see someone at work and they're like, like, dude, you seem you seem different. Like, you seem like you're doing good. You know, you're happy. And I'm like, I am. Yeah, man. Yeah. Didn't need any VA medication for that either. No, definitely not. It's the best part. The only thing I need from the VA is my disability check. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, amen to that, man. Uh, We're at a little over an hour and 15 minutes. I know you got something coming up uh, pretty soon. So just two questions. Any any intention to do any more journeys, or are you good where you're at? Uh, No, that's one of the other things that has been really resounding is that uh, there's more work to be done. You know, and there always is the, the great work of life. And this is one of the, one of the big themes of Freemasonry, right? As we start out as what they call rough ashlar, which is the stone taken from the quarry. And the, the great work, so to speak, is to become the perfect ashlar, which is the smooth cube of stone that is ready for the builder's work. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'm chiseling off those rough edges and I'm, I'm trying to get everything smoothed out, but there's definitely more work to be done. Right. Absolutely. And then final question, if you can go back in time and give yourself any piece of advice, uh, what would you go back to and what would you say? Uh, I think the biggest piece of advice I probably would have given myself is that getting married for BAH is not the right reason to get married. (laughs) Yeah. Can't say I didn't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Probably more than anything else. Yeah, man. That's good. Wise words from a, a wise man. Well, dude, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, again, dude, seriously, thank you for reaching out to me. Uh, I can't tell how much that means. I do have one other, one other thing real quick. Yeah. Um, so, so recently I started uh, testosterone replacement therapy. Okay. And the reason I want to bring that up is I, I can't quote the studies or the science exactly, but one of the trends that I've noticed uh, in like PTSD research and guys that are exposed to these blast injuries, uh, you know, they're starting to figure out that there's damage to the pituitary gland, which causes low testosterone. And the symptoms of low testosterone, like, exacerbate the symptoms of PTSD drastically. Yeah. And, you know, in, in that culture of 
you know, macho manliness operator guys, like nobody wants to do anything that is going to make them perceived to be less of a man. So no one wants to admit like, maybe I'm not making as much testosterone as I should be. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to encourage anyone listen, listening to this. If you're having issues with depression or lack of energy or weight gain, like go get your testosterone levels checked, you know, and, and take care of it because it makes a huge difference. I just put in a deal for um, America's Mightiest Warriors, and that's one of the things I do. I'm going to plug Andrew Mars' deal, Warrior Angels. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, He's all about it, man. Endocrinologist, uh, seeing what your testosterone levels are, seeing where your hormones are at, because that's not just huge implications. That's every implication, right? Mental mental and physical, emotional performance, it's all tied into it. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're spot on, man. So I've been having, I've had sleep issues for over a decade now. You know, I got maybe an hour of sleep last night, um, three to four night, you know, that whole deal. And then you, you're right. Like you combine uh, pituitary damage, overworked, underslept, add alcohol to the mix. Dude, there's no testosterone anymore. Yeah. You have the testosterone of a five-year-old girl, you know, if that. And it's, I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but but maybe not really. We're definitely on the lower end, if not below that. We, well, especially you got to figure, you know, when you're at your peak in that high adrenaline lifestyle and you're jumping out of planes and you're blowing shit up and shooting guns, like yeah. doing all that stuff is going to make your testosterone naturally increase anyways. You're surrounded by testosterone fueled alpha males all the time and you're always in competition. Mm-hmm. And when you step away from that and it just stops, it's going to crash. It's bad. Yeah. And then that's uh, some people take their own lives. I know there's a lot more that goes into it than just testosterone, but yeah. everything counts, you know, everything counts. And I wish we could, it's getting better to where there's a, a network of sort of support sources. Um, but hopefully that continues to grow and the awareness gets out there. Cause there's a lot of stuff that I'm just now finding out about, and, you know, I've been out coming up on four years pretty soon and I don't know about any of this stuff. So the more we can put this stuff out, the more we can help people. And the lower that daily veteran suicide rate has to be. Let's get it down to zero, you know? And we do that. I'm going to do a little bit of a shameless plug here. Go for uh, it. I got involved with an organization here in Oklahoma City called Halo Fury. Okay. And uh, it was started, this, uh, this girl, her brother, was in 4th Brigade, 82nd Airborne. And he took his own life uh, February of 2019, actually, the same time that we were doing the plant medicine. Or, no, it was a year before that. I, I'm sorry. Right, right. But still, yeah. So, um, so her and her husband are starting this organization. Uh, it's a, a weed grow operation, but they're going to use it to fund a nonprofit veterans organization uh, for, that exact, for that exact cause to try and help with the suicide epidemic. And, you know, once, once we get it up, up and running, uh, getting – Getting veterans involved in plant medicine is definitely something that's high on my priority of things to do, whether it's marijuana or ayahuasca or toad, whatever it is, you know, we'll figure out what works because it's not one, one patch fits all, but right. Yeah, definitely kind of help because we don't have, you don't have a platoon to fall back on. You get out in the civilian world and, you know, as much as people can post Facebook videos all day doing 22 pushups, like, you know, you know, that's not really helping. So yeah. And, and people like me, I know I need all the help I can get. So I'm glad you mentioned that dude. Send me some more information on that. I'll definitely put it in the show notes. 
and then we'll keep in touch, man. You know, keep supporting each other's causes and keep reaching out to other people and, and saving lives. For sure. Awesome, man. All right, I'll let you go. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. My first podcast, so. Yeah, dude, congratulations. I'm glad I could, uh, glad I could help with that. <laughs> awesome, buddy. Have a good day. All right, later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please read the show notes for any links or other amplifying information mentioned or used in the production of today's show. Climb 4 is a registered 501c3. To purchase merchandise, contribute donations, or to apply for hiking camping equipment, or to send us a message, please visit Climb 4 at wwwclimb 4org That's www.climb-4.org. And if you're a veteran and wish to be on the podcast, please send an email to info at climb-4.org. Once again, that's info at climb-4.org. See you next time.